the marketers who have strong brand stories should come back strong to tell their story because consumers, I think, will respond to it. There is this thing about a trusted source, regardless of what it is, media or, or brand product. So yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to track. This is The Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. So our guest today is a special media advisor to the CEO of Hearst, Michael Clinton, who's been a friend of ours for a very long time and who is someone who has a rather unique vantage point on the, um, the consumer through the lens, obviously, of the publishing landscape, but also the publications, obviously, that Hearst uh, touches. It really touches the consumer industry uh, as well, based on many of their advertisers. Uh, being brands and retailers and such. Um, so he has, I think, quite a unique uh, pulse on what is happening out in not only consumer land, but also um, the media and consumer retail landscape uh, during these times. And it's a great pleasure to have him with us on the safari. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Um, thank you for having me. And, and also, uh, I must say that you're quite the Renaissance man if I may say so myself, you, you're not only um, a high-flying executive, but you're also uh, an author and a traveler. Am I, am I not mistaken? Yes, that is true. Um, thank you for acknowledging that. I've done 10 books, eight books of photography, two books I've written, and I'm about to uh, start writing a new book, which um, if you're interested, we can talk about a little later. And uh, I just hit my 124th country on a visit to Ethiopia. Well, I'm definitely going to get to that because I think in these times, if there's one thing that people want to hear about is travel, <laughs> what would you say? Uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, I've been mean, seeing all these, these jokes going around of people planning their Easter vacations, whether, choosing whether they should go from the living room to the TV room. Exactly, yeah. So um, coming back to just to, to business and the industry for a second, um, the the world that we're living in with COVID-19 uh, shutting down um, much of the um, much of the planet, uh, much of business, uh, with everyone at home with not much to do, one might be led to believe that people who are the cre natural creators of content should be uh, king. Now, obviously, your advertisers are struggling, therefore that might make things uh, harder on the revenue side. But presumably on the um, content side or on the uh, viewership side, um, you, you must be getting a lot of traffic. Um, can you speak a little bit about whether that is a correct statement or not? Well, absolutely. I've been in touch with uh, Kate Lewis, who is Hearst Magazine's chief content officer, 
And she was telling me just the other day that traffic has been up 30% year on year um, across all of our combined sites. You know, I think what's happening is, you know, people, you can only watch so much of the news. Uh, of course, we're all tuning in to Cuomo, who's doing an amazing job, but you can only watch so much of the news before you go into that, uh, you know, sort of anxiety state. So I think a lot of people are turning to uh, lifestyle content. And, you know, what is so amazing is that the access to our content is right there at your fingertips in terms of all of our, of all of our websites. Um, ironically, even though, you know, uh, their visits to grocery stores are now being limited, we had also seen magazine sales um, in, in grocery stores and some of those places have a slight uptick because I think people are hunkering down and saying they're going to sit and they're going to read a magazine or read a book as well as going online. And I think um, obviously that's not happening with airports and bookstores. But um, I think people are looking for ways to entertain and inform themselves. Absolutely. And do you feel that there's a certain kind of content uh, within your universe? I mean, for those of us who have lived under a rock for the last three decades, remind everyone the publications that are the ones that are uh, maybe largest, but it's very broad, I know. And then, and then as a second question to that or second follow-on to that is, where do you feel the consumer is um, is, is gravitating? I mean, is it to travel? Is it to improving their home because they're spending so much time there? Uh, is fashion uh, a dream or is it something that people are putting on, on pause? As much as you're able to, to tell us around sort of the, 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 the travels of the consumer during these times. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we have 25 magazine and 25 magazine brands and they range from, you know, the very high ends like Town & Country and Harper's Bazaar, all the way to Good Housekeeping and Woman's Day and Oprah, Big Mass Circulation magazines. Definitely people are spending time uh, on the home, the Big Mass magazines, trying to learn about ways to keep your house clean, how to... Uh, you know, things that you can do with the kids while you're at home. So we're seeing a lot of action on the big sites like A Good Housekeeping, for example, or Women's Health um, or Woman's Day, because those are real practical tips that um, a woman can use or a man for that matter. Um, on the flip side, I think that, you know, there are a certain amount of uh, fantasy relief when you go and you look at fashion and you're looking at beauty and you're looking at trends. Um, you know, one of the things which is happening, I know this from talking to one of our largest clients, is that the, the hair care business and hair care content is very robust right now because um, you can buy hair care products uh, through e-commerce. Uh, women who have their hair colored and not being able to go to the hair salon are saying, geez, you know, I'm going to have to color my own hair. What does that mean? Maybe they haven't mm -hmm. done that in years. Um, also the makeup business is very, very soft because women aren't wearing makeup because they're not going out of the house. So maybe they're wearing makeup when they're doing a zoom conference if for work, but the, the makeup business we hear is, um, is very soft and there's not a lot of interest in it right now. Um, the, the, the luxury fragrance business is very tough right now because all the stores that sell it from department stores to Sephora, et cetera are closed. So, um, you know, they don't have as much e-commerce action. 
We have a uh, mechanism at Hearst. We, we have a lot of um, e-commerce initiative. We, last year, our sites sold over $200 million worth of merchandise. We got a, an affiliate uh, fee for that. So we're able to track what actually our consumer is buying off of our sites. And we have affiliate relationships with you know, all the majors, obviously. Uh, as well as department stores. So that's a, a, a good indicator as to what is actually being attempted to be bought on e-commerce. And those were just some examples of the things that are, are moving. A, a quick question, follow-up on that regarding, let's call it contextual commerce or, or, or content to commerce. Mm. Um, there, there has been over the decades even, um, dating back to American Express in the 90s, if you can believe it. Uh, and then even recently, some of your competitors 10 years ago trying to light up some of their magazines uh, to be effectively marketplaces. Um, I know that I think some of your publications have indeed tried being more of a marketplace online. It dawns on me, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, that the power of, the con- of, of those content aggregators, the power of the loyal consumer that you have um, to be able to discover with you on your platforms and then gracefully uh, convert in platform. Um, I know that it's hard maybe to optimize for view time as well as conversion. It's uh, maybe two different disciplines, but it would seem to me that when you have the eyeballs, you have the customer having your own marketplace capability, which could be wildly robust, effectively your own far-fetch what do you think about that? Are those things um, happening? Uh, are they being tested? Are you wary of that? What's the what's the the full one one? No, it's happening big time. I think it's for publishers who produce quality content, and I think there is this big push um, for marketers, especially to be one around to be around quality content. Um, that engagement, and you use the right word, contextual content, um, we see as a usually growing business for us. Um, in our magazine company. In fact, we've been, we've been doing it already. All of our editors are equipped to learn how to do it in terms of sending the viewer to a, to a place to purchase. Uh, it's happening on both sides of the business, both editorial and also on the publishing side. We now will produce branded content for brands and they will embed their e-commerce buttons or uh, so forth right to their own sites or to a partner retail site. So we think it's we think it's a huge opportunity for for quality content companies to build a completely different uh, revenue stream. We're seeing it. We're enhancing it. Um, it is uh, the engagement factors are great. Uh, we're able to track the funnel, the famous funnel, where we can look at those who um, became engaged, top of funnel, mid funnel, all the way to the bottom to purchase. We can retarget them within our own universe. We can build. Um, uh, models that allow us to capture them outside of our own universe for, for targeting. So it is really, um, I think, a very big part of our present and our future. Good. I mean, we, we agree. We ha- we're very involved on the other side of that equation with e-commerce platforms and one in particular that believes in contextual commerce, not, ne- not simply being two-dimensional, but also three-dimensional and outside the physical retail store, meaning being able to shop real life, being able to use one's smartphone uh, when one's in a hotel or when one is uh, just walking through someone's house to be able to um, effectively buy the product being seen or equivalent products. 
Um, and therefore, you know, I think you're absolutely on, on the right track. Where else? Um, let's talk about innovation uh, for a second. It's, this isn't um, the first time the publishing industry has had to think through uh, and pivot like every company, I think, today. Every seven years, there's a pivot. Um, you know, you guys have been uh, hunkered down as an industry for quite a long time with the advent of digital. I think you've all turned it around very well with your own digital platforms and people be very comfortable with your brands. And I also believe that brand is king um, and the brand can lead and go beyond uh, your initial product, in your cases, magazines. But what are you doing to either create um, with this platform that you have, create new businesses, um, license or extend the brands into other areas? Um, How does that all come together, uh, if at all? Yeah, I think the good news is if you go back 10 years, the magazine industry basically had two streams of revenue. That was print advertising and subscription and newsstand circulation revenue. I mean, that was really it. You know, today we've got six, seven streams of revenue. You know, we still have a robust uh, print advertising business. Yes, it has, um, you know, eroded over time and we have circulation revenue. Um, but now we have, you know, a huge digital revenue business that has multiple components from branded content to direct display to programmatic, which everyone's familiar with. We have this uh, stream, this e-commerce business that I mentioned. We have a very big licensing program where we license our brands outside of the, um, of our own universe into retail and e-commerce. Uh, we have experiential businesses, uh, which is another way to build off a brand. We have a magazine called Country Living. They have the Country Living Fair, which takes place in four markets and generates, you know, significant profit for that brand's P and L. Um, and we're always we're, we're working on a B two B SaaS product that would be uh, for the luxury marketplace, which is called Pattern and Shape, which is a whole other business for us in the in that segment. So um, that's a new uh, stream of revenue. And I think the trick is, you know, you now have multiple feeds of revenue coming in against a brand or against a magazine company, um, which gives you much more opportunity than, you know, quite honestly, just the two, two streams we had, you know, just 10 years ago. So it's been a reinvention. I like to um, tease my, uh, my television counterparts who are now going through disruption, as you know, through the streaming, um, through, through streaming challengers that, you know, we went through this 10, 10 plus years ago. So we're, this is sort of like we've, we've reimagined and retooled ourselves as an industry and a company um, on, on this journey. Yeah, I mean, speaking of, of that, of the television guys, YouTube recently released their numbers, uh, which had never been done before. And they uh, account for the equivalent of tw- their ad revenues account for t- about 25% of all television revenues in this country combined. Oh. And I, I, it leads the, the question, which I find so interesting is, you know, content along the long tail. So I see you guys and obviously, you know, the networks in um, TV land as being the sort of center of the bell curve. And there's two long tails heading off in either direction. Um, but as the long tail gets longer and deeper because some random person in their garage comes up with a show or, a, or, a, or content that people want to, to watch or follow, whether it's a blog or a vlog or you name it, um, how do you make those individuals 
partners versus uh, effectively competition? How do you see all these influencers and creators along the long tail? And how do you bring them into the fold potentially and, and actually use them as an asset versus a liability? Yeah, no, what we, um, we have lots of uh, relationships. Obviously, we have a relationship with YouTube. All of our uh, brands live on YouTube and have YouTube, cha- YouTube challenges, sorry, YouTube um, channels. Um, we also, um, you know, have bought a couple of companies where we produce content that lives uh, on YouTube uh, for our, our, our channels. Um, so we do have relationships. We've had past relationships with MSN, um, you know, the, the, the world of influencers, I like to say there are a lot of influencers who don't influence. Um, so we're extraordinarily selective about what influencers we do align ourselves with, and we will integrate into the influencer community. I think that's a bubble that's going to now explode and burst, uh, you know, post, post-pandemic. Um, so obviously we have relationships with Facebook, um, because they're also looking for content. I think one of the things that's interesting is to watch over the next, uh, months is a lot of the, uh, pure play digital brands that were launched and, or were sort of the darlings for a period of time. Are they going to survive? Because they have been, and you've been reading what a lot of them are doing in terms of cutting back and, and. Uh, furloughing people and firing people. I think there's going to be a lot of carnage with these pure play digital brands that um, had a nice run, but may not have a long term run. Uh, certainly we're watching TikTok because it's a big emerging platform and we're, we're engaging with TikTok in terms of content, content production. I think that the, there's a lot of debate within the marketing community about Facebook um, you know, you got to be there, but to what extent should you be there? And, you know, all of the issues that we all know about with Facebook, I think there's a lot of um, questioning. So I think there are some guardrails that are being put around that. I think we're going to come out of this with a, with a completely new, new order. And I, I'm a believer, not just for my own obvious interest, that, that quality content providers are going to reign supreme because of the importance of the content and the safety and the privacy well, and the authenticity. Thank you. I, I, yeah. I, well, I'll let you finish your thought. But yeah, I, yeah, I, no, I, wanna... yeah. I mean, I think that we're seeing that happen already, but I think consumers in particular are sort of retrenching a bit and doing a lot of um, reassessing as to where they're getting their information and so forth. You'll notice that the, the celebrity um, factor has been very, very quiet during this period. And, you know, I think that, you know, celebrity content is oftentimes kind of snack food. You kind of check in, you kind of see it, you kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, And so it'll be interesting to really see all these celebrities who are building their platforms, how many of those really also continue to survive. So I think get back to the quality point. I think quality content producers are going to end up uh, at the top of the heap. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to that point, we're noticing it in two different areas um, around trust. So about uh, two or three months ago on this podcast, we had Michael um, Stone, who was the founder of the Beanstalk Group, which is the largest, probably best recognized licensing agency on the planet. Yeah. And he was the advisor to you know Coca-Cola, for example, yeah. on all their licensing for for decades, and he's probably one of the great minds, uh, if not the mind in the space. And we were talking then, and this was for pre-corona, about 
trust and what brands mean to consumers and that reputation is repetition and that it's a promise and you entangle with your consumers. And, and you know, when push comes to shove and when it's for better or worse, when it's worse, your consumers come back to you because they trust you. You've been with them. Uh, and the dalliances of maybe the last 10 years uh, of leaving certain incumbent businesses, I believe there's People will, people will come back to, to them. And the reason is, is as you said, um, health and safety. I mean, Google's struggling with getting the right amount of information about what are the true symptoms of coronavirus? What yeah. are the um, elements? What are the things that you need to do to keep safe? You've seen many emails circulating uh, from you know, Stanford Medical, which were not indeed Stanford Medical. Um, so there was just random emails floating around. Uh, and then, you know, I'm working on a task force for the city to get PPE to the hospitals. You wouldn't uh, be, you'd be shocked at the amount of profiteers there are trying to sell dodgy stuff to sick people and, and also to our, our effectively to our to our um, healthcare workers. So the the return to the trusted mainstays of, let's say, the last 50 years, I believe is something that uh, will indeed um uh, have a recurrence. And, um, you know, it'd be interesting to hear from you, you know, any embers of that or specific examples that you may be able to point to that you're already seeing. Well, I would say that you're, you're spot on. And also, I would say this is across category, all categories, not just media and content, because I will, you know, pick a, a company called Proc- Procter & Gamble. You know, one of the things that you know instinctively about the Procter & Gamble brands is that you know what they do with uh, Tide or Crest or Pampers is going to be quality product that is going to be uh, important to the consumer. So I can use that. I can go to L'Oreal and look at how they use science to develop their product. You know, you've got this world of indies that are coming after established marketers, whether it's in the fashion space or the beauty space. You know, all these indies that are you know chewing around the the market share of these these major brands. And a lot of them uh, don't do the due diligence of what brands do to market themselves and create quality product. And I think there'll be a lot of purging that will happen, you know, certainly in, you know, let's put the economics aside of whether these, these brands can continue on. But I think there could be a flight to brand quality. Um, you know, since I've had a 40-year career in this space, I've been through many, many recessions. And the one thing I have learned is that the marketers who have strong brand stories, um, they may, historically, if they continue communicating through a recession, that has been good for them in terms of long-term brand equity. Certainly, this is unprecedented what we're going through. But I would argue that those who have strong brand stories should come back strong to tell their story. Uh, once we, you know, this all begins, the, the curve begins to flatten because consumers, I think, will respond to it. There is this thing about wanting to, you know, go back to sort of a, tr- as you use the word trust, a trusted source, regardless of what it is, media or, or brand product. So, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to track. So staying on the innovation track just for a second, then we'll leave all this behind us and go traveling with you. Um, Asia. Asia has had QR codes, quick response codes uh, in many of its countries, um, allowing for publishers and um, phone booths and billboards to effectively 
allow people to purchase something that they want impulsively in the moment uh, through their smartphones. Um, I find it to be, you know, it's so second nature. You can, you can tip someone with their QR code. They just take out their QR code and you just tip them. Um, why on earth is that not happening in the West? And, 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 and is Hearst examining how to Im embed QR codes into your publications or in some fashion to reduce the friction that is so often the case in physical publishing, and, but also on digital, because you could still, uh, if you're watching your computer and there's a QR code, you can aim your phone at your computer and, and do the same thing as if it were on a billboard. What, has, that, has there been any expo exploration around that and any thoughts? We have tested every single QR code that has come into the marketplace. We have embedded it into our print magazines uh, in particular. Um, what has the, you hit it. The American consumer, first of all, is not um, interested. Let's put it that way. There also hasn't been a um, universally accepted code, you, you know, uh, QR code that is ubiquitous in the culture. I will caveat that by saying that Amazon, obviously the Amazon um, Smile, which you might be familiar with, we did a big test with Cosmopolitan Magazine with the Amazon Smile, and the numbers were okay. You know, they, we did it for about 18 months, but we didn't see a build in terms of a consistency of use. So I think until there is a universally accepted QR code that is... Um, you know, in the marketplace, it's been very, very lackluster for the consumer. And I don't think we're alone in this. I think it's across every, every area that has tried to test it. I mean, obviously, Amazon and the Amazon, uh, you know, app and, and Prime, et cetera, is the, is the place to have it. But, um, you know, it's sort of been a non-issue in, in the American consumer. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that I, I would agree with that statement. Um, I think maybe up until very recently, I mean, I think the latest iOS release uh, and the Androids as well have basically made it so that you just need to put your camera up to any QR code and it will read any QR code. So that having to have a QR code reader embedded into some app or your magazine is no longer needed. So my, my question, it's a hypothetical really is, you know, whether, whether, it, it has always been um, not adopted because it was just so clunky, and now maybe it's less clunky. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. I think the technology—it's uh, got to be ease of use. It's got to be something that is um, like you know, you and I can go on Amazon right now and buy anything we want with one click. So it's got to be something that really takes all the friction out um, of the of the process. But I don't see it on the horizon here in the near future. Yeah. All right. Let's have some fun now. I'm looking at Michael on a Zoom call here, and he, on his background, has this beautiful beach, and there's a palm tree, and it's a video, and it's really quite special. And he is one of the great travelers. My wife and I and my children have a, a, a goal, which is that what we all must have reached uh, as many countries visited as we are old. And by that measure, Michael is well into his hundreds. <laughs> um, and so maybe just give us a little bit of background on your travel bug and where it came from and, and then maybe dive in and freestyle a little bit. I won't obviously ask too many questions on this because I'm sure you could just go, go off as, as long as you wanted. But talk to us about where the bug came from 
the the book, the second book, and then maybe dive into the Philippines a little bit because I'm I'm sure that there's nowhere more special. Incredibly, incredibly, I hear the beaches are some of the best in the world. But over to you. Well, well um, first of all, um, I, I had my travel bug start when I was 13 years old and went off to Ireland to visit some family. My grandparents were immigrants from Ireland. Hi, Clinton. Now, yes, I now have a my I have an Irish passport in addition to my American passport, but that's go. another story. But I was 13 years old. I went off to Ireland, and I was just had the light bulb go off over my head that this was uh, flying across the Atlantic was something that I was destined to do. So when I was 18, like many kids in my generation, I went off and backpacked through Europe for four months and lived in hostels and beaches and just had an incredible um, experience and knew that I was sort of destined to go and explore the world. So... Um, you know, I was, it was just sort of organic. It was natural. I like going to places that um, I like to say, go to them before they hit the, um, the radar. So yeah. I went early into Bhutan and to Myanmar and to Sri Lanka. And I'm just back from Ethiopia, which I had mentioned. And, you know, oftentimes I like to get in I'm there. I'm sorry. I said, I said, I said the Philippines no, and no, Ethiopia. Fine. Yeah. Fine. I, you know, I like to get there before it becomes a thing. Um, you know, now everybody's going to Bhutan. Um, you know, we slept in tents and sleeping bags long before the Amman was there. So, um, you know, I like that kind of travel. Um, so, you know, Madagascar, uh, Mozambique, you know, places like that. Um, so it's been, it's been a great, a great adventure. I, when I was uh, at around uh, counting on my countries and I was at around 75, 80, there's this club called the Traveler Century Club. Um, which you got to be to a hundred countries before you can join it. So I'm like, I think I could do that. So, um, you know, they give a little poetic license in that they count things like Greenland as a country, even though it's really governed by the Vatican, or maybe we're going to buy it. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, there, even if I, um, take out the poetic license, I'm, you know, well over a hundred countries. So yeah, it's just a, um, it's been a personal passion. I wrote a book called The Globetrotter Diaries, which um, is sort of a memoir of all these great travels. You know, I mentioned these photography books. I've become the de facto travel agent for many people um, yeah. that uh, I'm happy to do. I, have, uh, I do that on a regular basis. No fee, no charge. Um, so, yeah, it's just my thing. It's my thing. So it's been, it's uh, hopefully, you know, it'll, it'll continue. We have a family reunion in Ireland the end of July this year. Hopefully it'll happen with the pandemic, but um, I'm always planning the next place. So that's a full circle then, right? So back, back yes, to Ireland. Right, yeah. Every, everything there, leads back there, to Ireland. Yeah, I've been there, you know, regularly, yeah. So the Globetrotter Diaries was the first book or it's the new book? Well, it is um, the first book I wrote. Um, I just finished, I had a book that came out last fall called Tales from the Trails. I had done mm-hmm. a marathon on every continent. So yes, I ran a marathon on Antarctica and um, ran one in Mongolia and one in uh, Argentina, etc. And this is a collection of stories about um, global running. And I had, I wrote maybe 14 stories. I had another 14 collaborators, Mark Metric, who's the president of Saxeth Avenue, wrote a story for me in the book, which was great. He told his personal story, which was phenomenal. I went with Mark when he was running his first marathon in New York, his first marathon period. We went out to the starting gate together 
Um, and so he is um, now a bonafide marathoner. And so anyway, that was a great fun book. I did a book tour and went around the country and did all that. So um, that was the second, the second book I wrote versus the photography books. So um, just to, 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 to wrap up, are there, you know, three to five countries um, and the others won't be offended ah. uh, that um, you truly, you, you wake up or you're in the shower and you're like, oh, oh, I wish I could go back there to your spiritual home, perhaps. Yeah, that's a great uh, question. First of all, I would say my spiritual home, to use that phrase, is in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, which wow. is in America. Yeah. Um, I have a home there, <clears throat> which I built about 10 years ago. It is a family home and vacation home. And it is, to me, the, the perfect place in the world. Uh, for those who haven't been there, I would say go. Um, Italy, um, poor Italy at the moment, struggling. But it, Italy has uh, everything you could possibly want in a destination, history, culture, food, you know, amazing people, all the above. So I always, when people say to me, if there's only one place I can go, in the world, and I've never been outside the States, where should I go? I always say Italy. Um, I have a passion for Argentina. <clears throat> I'm there um, uh, once a year. For uh, We have a small business down there, um, unrelated to my work. And so it's in the Mendoza region. We Some friends and I uh, started a vineyard uh, in 2007. So we have a small... What's it, what's it called? Um, our wine's called Lechuza. But um, it's embedded into a place called Vines of Mendoza, which you can Google, which is quite, quite amazing. And we have our property there. So I go to Argentina a lot, which I love. And of course, Ireland, because of my, the obvious um, family roots there. So um, yeah. I know those aren't necessarily the most exotic places. They don't <laughs> need I to think, be. But we find the things that connect to us personally, right? To make the connection. You know, pick pick some adventures. Go to some, do some adventurous trip somewhere. And so I have a long list of adventure trips that from, as I mentioned, I rattled off a lot of places. And, you know, I want to go to Papua New Guinea and I want to go to, um, you know, places like that. I've been to Namibia, which is amazing. Uh, been to India several times, which I love. I know you have a passion for India as well. Yeah, you did, a, yeah. you did a book. You did a book on India, which I have sitting on my bookshelves. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, we did a uh, to India with love. Now nice. maybe twelve years ago. Yeah. So, Michael, what a what a wonderful way to end and to suggest to everyone, at least for now, plan their adventure. And yes. then, of course, we'll all go. We'll all go on back on our adventures, hopefully very soon. Um, Michael, what a what a wonderful conversation. What a wonderful. Um, you know, story of your of your outside of work life. It's, I'm sure there must be two of you to do all of that marathons and travel and work. And you got a clone somewhere, I'm sure. But um, Michael Clinton, thank you so much for joining me on the safari. Well, you know, Teddy Roosevelt said, "Lead the strenuous life." So go out and do all the things you ever hoped you would do. Especially now in this pause moment, plan your future and reimagine yourself. Thanks so much. It was great to be here with you. Likewise, thank you, Michael. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.